I haven't arrived. I'm not super successful. I'm just real. Yeah. Welcome to the Beautiful Project Podcast. What's it going to take for you, like you said, to see me? How? I don't understand. A place for ordinary women sharing extraordinary truths. I am fat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I'm so much, you know, I'm learning to tell myself that I am so much more. Let my hair grow out. I can wear the clothes I want to wear. I can eat what I want to eat. Who are waiting for you to be their witness. If I can do anything... I want to be able to inspire people to just be their best. Welcome back to the Beautiful Project podcast. I'm Sarah Stevens, your host for this podcast and the founder of the Beautiful Project. I am honored and excited for uh, today's conversation. This season is focusing in on some of the people and places and opportunities that I've had over the last four years that have allowed me to find a way to come back to my body. And today's guest has been pivotal in that experience for me. And I don't know that she always necessarily knows that because we haven't done a ton of work together, but we have done enough work together um, that she has offered me a path to learn to trust myself with food. And that at the core is vital to the coming back to our bodies. As we've talked about in the first um, three seasons, there are so many opportunities and invitations for us to be divorced from ourselves, from our own cues about what is good for us, uh, particularly around hunger and fullness. I think that that's probably one of the first places that we are invited to divorce ourselves from ourselves. And so for me, the path back very much had to do with food and my relationship with food. And what I discovered very early on was that there was literally no way for me to figure that out on my own and that I needed a little bit of help in that process. And Michelle has been a part of that um, help in the process. So thank you for saying yes and welcome. Thank you so much, Sarah. You bet. It's so wonderful to see you in person. Yes, this is oh, this is uh, very strange because we started working together during Well, I guess right before COVID, but because you aren't local, everything we've done has been virtual. Mm -hmm. So Michelle um, drove here to the Quad Cities today to have this conversation with me, which is awesome. It is great to see you in person as well. So I'm just going to let you get started by telling the audience a little bit about who you are and about what you do. Okay. I'm Michelle Russell. I'm a dietitian slash nutrition therapist slash eating disorder specialist. I have a private practice in Burlington, Iowa. Mm -hmm. I have a beautiful office where you can see the Mississippi River right from my office windows where I see gorgeous gorgeous muddy Mississippi right (laughs) yes and I'm licensed in multiple states in the Midwest so I see clients help them with their relationship with food and body healing and movement healing Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got started in that work like why does this matter to you gosh Oh my goodness. What We're going to go question. right there. We're yes. going to go right into the like I mean, juicy human part. I, I went to school to become a dietitian, not knowing that I was struggling with an eating disorder. I was just very interested in nutrition. Mm-hmm. My very first nutrition class, we read the book intuitive eating mm-hmm. and I thought, Oh, this is wonderful for other people, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> um, and through training, I kept coming back to intuitive eating. I went through recovery of my own and it was so interesting learning 
different things in coursework to become a dietitian and different things from my team helping me heal from my own eating struggles. And so intuitive eating was something I kept coming back to. Mm-hmm. And when I practiced as a dietitian, I, I didn't want to work with people's relationship with food right away mm-hmm. because I was still in my own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that that's what I wanted to come back to. So about five years ago, I opened my private practice um, mm-hmm. and have been learning and growing alongside people ever since. So for people who don't know, uh, can you? I, I want you to talk a little bit about what intuitive eating means. Now, mm-hmm. I know that intuitive eating has gotten probably more press these days than it ever had historically. I actually remember reading the book when I was 18 Mm -hmm. and um, deep in my own eating disorder at the time. But I remember feeling some profound resonance with what was being shared there Mm -hmm. and also being completely clueless about how to implement what the suggestions were because they made no sense to me uh, because I had been so divorced from my own cues about hunger for so long. And I would have not at all identified that I was living with an eating disorder at the time. What I was doing was being quote healthy, unquote, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally relate. So I can say that I've noticed over the course of years that there is more attention paid now to intuitive eating. And I also think that as it becomes more mainstream, it's getting a little bit hijacked. Uh, Definitely. And by little bit, I mean super hijacked. Yes, Noom, I'm looking at you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Noom, Mm -hmm. wise. Anyway, I digress. Um, So I would really like you to share a little bit about what what intuitive eating is. What does that mean when we talk about it? Yeah. So intuitive eating is an evidence-based non-diet philosophy to help people reconnect with their bodies and reject popular dieting, which is anything that gives us a prescriptive set of rules around what and how much and when to eat. Mm-hmm. So it was developed by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, two dietitians and nutrition therapists in practice in California. Back in 1995, they wrote the first book. And it's since been revised and there's hundreds of research studies to validate the 10 intuitive eating principles. So the first principle is reject the diet mentality. And it really is essential to lean into that process and knowing that there's not a diet plan or a cleanse or detox or reset or something out there that's going to fix your problems, whether you perceive problems with weight or problems with hormones or problems with any number of conditions that people might turn to food to fix. Um, Nutrition does play a role in health. I'm not negating that but it can't fix things on its own. And sometimes we put too much emphasis on food to be the solution. And so rejecting that and knowing that we have the internal cues that we can tune back into if we're distanced from those to listen to our bodies and be guided by our bodies rather than by what somebody else is saying. Mm-hmm. Which is an enormous leap of, um, I was gonna say faith and I don't even know that that's it. I'd be curious to know how many people get to you by way of just being exhausted from trying every other way. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to like, oh, you know, on the front side being like, hey, this is the first thing I'm going to try. I feel for me, it was more like I have tried literally everything else. And the last thing I'm going to try is trusting myself. Right. Which is tragic when I say it like that. Yeah. I, I think that's so common, though. I mean, I 
would say the typical person that intuitive eating was kind of created for is that chronic dieter, the person who's done all the methods and done all the things and blame themselves for the position that they're in when they feel like nothing works and they don't know how to eat. And most clients that I work with have tried, you know, they would have a, a whole list of diets and programs that they've tried over usually decades. And they finally are coming to that place where they're not the problem. The, the diet programs and endless things that were sold, that's the problem. Can you talk a little bit, I mean, I talk about it all the time, particularly on social media, so less actually on this podcast. Um, can you talk a little bit about what diet culture means and what do we know about diets and, um, and why it is that none of that works? Mm-hmm. I mean, diet culture in a nutshell is the belief that we can eat a certain way, change our bodies and all kind of conform to be the same kind of neutral size. And non-diet approaches honor that there's natural body size diversity inherent in all of us and that we're not all going to be the same size. Mm-hmm. And so I think when the BMI, um, body mass index has become so normal, especially in medical settings, a lot of times people are told, well, this is what your body should weigh. Um, and they believe it from that context, but they also get it from the the cultural context, you know, magazines back in the day, but social media um, in present day of like what we're quote supposed to look like yeah. or what's attractive. And so we get it from multiple angles that our bodies are supposed to look a certain way. And then there's countless gurus and diet professionals selling any anything under the sun. I mean, if we think of just popular diets that are um, most prominent right now, today, if we combined all of them together, we would have nothing to eat. <laughs> I mean, literally, you think of like the safe thing, vegetables typically are safe. Well, not on the not carnivore anymore. diet, yep. mm-hmm. you know, and so it's just, it's pervasive and everybody has a story and a relationship with food. And I don't fault the dieters um, or want to shame the dieters or the people who are um, very understandably lured into these really sneaky messages about how all of their problems will be fixed if they change their eating and follow this certain path. Mm-hmm. But it's so pervasive that most people believe that if they change their eating, there are so many of their problems in life would mm-hmm. change and, and be improved. Yeah, we are 100% generally sold that message mm-hmm. that the the life, the ease that we're looking for is on the other side of the next diet that will be successful where the other ones Mm -hmm. weren't. Um, So you mentioned that, that you had had this experience of healing um, in relationship to your own relationship with food. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, actually, that one of the things that stuck out to me is that you were given this book to read when you were in school, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I often, I mean, I have heard from a lot of dietitians who get very frustrated by the field of dietetics, yeah. intuitive eating dietitians, mm-hmm. who are like, we are missing the boat. So that's extremely interesting to me that you were, that intuitive eating was a part of that curriculum. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And that was actually when I was at a community college that I took my first nutrition class and this dietitian happened to have, you know, this personal experience with her own relationship with food and wanted to include intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And then my very last semester of college, my other professor in nutrition counseling also had us read that book and uh, and others and had us journal about it. And wow. she's since retired. And I think a lot of us are heartbroken about that because her work with helping 
the students with their own relationship with food and understanding food is a lot more than, and nutrition is a lot more than the education that we provide to people. Mm. That is something that really needs to be in the curriculum. And I think when I work with interns who are, you know, on their last stop before they get credentialed, many of them have never heard of intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. And so I take that opportunity to really share as much as I can with them. And most of them are, are just mind blown. Like, I can't believe I never heard about this. This is such a wake up call. This changes everything. Mm. Um, and it, it just needs to be in the core curriculum, no matter what. Um, but you know, I think it depends on who's teaching the courses and sure. I am hopeful. I'm always hopeful. That's why I continue to do this work. Right. Because I, I do see a movement. And sometimes I wonder if it's because it's in my own social media echo chamber. Right. Mm -hmm. So I draw to yeah. myself, the people who think like me, mm -hmm. and I'm still very like super conscious of the fact that, um, that this isn't everywhere yet by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But, uh, I do feel like there is a, some sort of a push to reconnect with ourselves as a source of trust and, and to learn how to feed yourself. Like that's such a basic function of being human. Right. But often the messaging from the very beginning is that you don't know, and you're going to have to trust another set of rules external to you, which was certainly my experience. I mean, from my, from some of my earliest experiences with food. So I'm, I, I'm, encouraged that the interns who get to you and then you share with them that there is a receptivity to it. Um, and I'm hopeful that the message can get everywhere it needs to get. I am thinking though about, um, in one thing in particular, actually, uh, it's, it's a criticism that I hear of intuitive eating from other people. And I know, I don't necessarily engage in the conversation myself because it's sort of dangerous for me to try to unpack people's resistance to intuitive eating. But the thing that I'll hear as pushback is you don't, you don't know me and food. If I don't have any food rules, I will never stop eating. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd like you to speak to that. First of all, would you say that you think that you hear that on sort of a, is that sort of a normal? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And then if you could talk a little bit about where that instinct comes from in us, and then also maybe just offer some insight into that that idea that, that you can't really be trusted with your own appetite. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the most common things because a lot of times when people hear about intuitive eating, they're hearing the message of you can eat whatever you want. And yeah. one of the principles is to have unconditional permission to eat whatever satisfies you. And people hear that and they, they know how they've been when they're off the diet where they're binging because they were so restricted and that's yes. natural biological response yes. and they feel out of control with food and the diets tell them, if you don't follow this, you don't know what you're doing. So you need us to tell you what to do. And when they experience that, when they go off the diet and they feel out of control, they think that the diet is right mm -hmm. rather than understanding that's their own biology, trying to re-nourish them from that restriction. Yep. And so when we have this, unconditional permission to eat, it's also within the bounds of the other principles, which encourage us to tune into satisfaction. And that is one of the key takeaways of intuitive eating. We want it to be satisfying. It's not satisfying to restrict and to think about when and how much and what you're supposed to eat throughout the day and have a salad instead of a, a hearty bowl of soup because you think you should have the salad. That's not satisfying. Mm -hmm. 
or it's not satisfying to overeat to the point of feeling sick. Mm -hmm. And so if we tune into satisfaction, we're not going to those extremes Mm -hmm. with food. We're not overdoing it. And I think that people have the perception that our bodies are unruly. And if we don't contain them, we will just, we will be out of control. And really with intuitive eating, we also turn in, tune into hunger and fullness. Mm-hmm. And those cues take time mm-hmm. to reestablish. <laughs> yeah, um, they, do. they can be really, really hard to read. Yes. I think that's really difficult. But ultimately, our bodies want us to feel good. And so we're not going to eat in ways that people perceive when you say unconditional permission to eat. Mm-hmm. That permission allows us to be neutral about our food decisions and then decide what is most satisfying for me. Yep. I, there's somebody on um, Instagram that I follow that I really like quite a bit. Um, I'm sure you know Caroline Dooner mm-hmm. of the, the Fuck It Diet, yes. right? She was just talking today about uh, restriction and she made a, a distinction between actual physical restriction of food and then mental restriction. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a newer reality to me in the, probably the last year. So just I I don't know how much over the years I've shared about this particular part of my work um, with myself and with my own body, but I quit dieting in 2018, which was the, you know, the rejection of diet culture, principle one. Yes. I hung out there for a very long time and sort of swung from those periods of hyper restriction and then months of like, I, I, I don't know that I would call it binging so much as like, I'm, I'm hung, I'm very hungry, right? Mm-hmm. I think maybe at the time I would have seen it as undisciplined mm-hmm. or lacking willpower. In hindsight, it's so easy for me to see how hungry I was. Uh, but it took me a very long time. And I still, I mean, I feel like it's going to take me a continued long time to let my body um, relax into a world without where the only rule is to stay in relationship to myself. So this concept of restriction that isn't just physical, like mental restriction, um, and how that leads, how that can lead to binging, like even just the mental restriction, right? So what I, what I'd like you to talk about a little bit, just dive in a little bit deeper if you can to is there science to support the idea that the likelihood of binging is pretty tightly connected to restriction in any form? Right. And what are the ways that, how can, how does restriction present itself? Like, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. So it can be this, this physical restriction of say someone's on a regimented eating pattern. They're not intaking that much food and they're physically restricting, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people are restricting mentally and they're eating whatever they feel out of control, but there's this constant tape in their head of, I shouldn't be eating that. I should change, you know, for breakfast tomorrow, I need to have this instead. I need to reset. I'm going to start Monday. All of these things of I'm planning to get back on the diet. Mm -hmm. And I I think I shouldn't be eating what I am eating Mm -hmm. is a mental restriction. Right. And that's connected then and there's a connection between that experience and then feeling out of control later. Right. 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 Because yeah. it can be like a like a slingshot 
Um, if we are restricting, it's kind of pulling it back, pulling it back, even if, if it's physical or if it's mental, yeah. it's pulling that back. And then at some point we break. Yep. Life hands us all sorts of complicated situations. Yep. We don't have any notice. And when, when we're vulnerable, then that's often when that's going to change. Mm. And so we may then feel even more out of control. And a lot of people experience so much self-blame, like it's their fault and their character flaw, something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Mm. That's such an important thing for people to know. Like, yeah, it's not your fault. Not your fault. Yeah. How do you see sort of deconstructing fat phobia or the connection with fear around being fat, becoming fat, connected to the difficulty of leaning into intuitive eating? I would say that's one of the most difficult things mm-hmm. for people that I work with and just in the in the general knowing of what's difficult for people with intuitive eating yeah. because they're afraid of what will happen to their body. Yep. And many times what we see when people go on repeated dieting attempts is that their weight creeps up over time as a biological survival method. And there's nothing wrong with that. Their body gets bigger, that's okay. Mm-hmm. We wanna know that their body's doing the best to take care of them. It's just very counter to what their intention is, their intention to make their body smaller. Yeah, It ends up being, you know, when we don't want people to blame themselves for that either, but we know that that's what tends to happen because our body perceives it as a famine. Yeah. Um, and so letting go of the rules feels like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to gain and gain and gain. Mm-hmm. And a lot of clients will have that fear that it's never going to stop. And I think one of the hardest things to sit with as people are going through this is that I don't know what's going to happen to their weight. They want me to give them yep. information. I have wanted you to tell me about that before. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know. I trust your body to know what to do when you are nourishing yourself and taking care of yourself. Your body will do what it needs to do. That could be, and I'll I'll sometimes tell people I can guarantee one of three things. You will gain weight, you will lose weight, or it will stay the same. (laughs) I don't know which. Thank you so much for that clarity, right? But Very reassuring. But we are so accustomed to at least being lied to by diets that, Mm -hmm. no, I can guarantee to you that this is how your body will respond. And then, as we know, in roughly 95% of the cases, bodies don't respond that way. Right. And so the perpetual sense of failure mm-hmm. of what's wrong with me and yeah. my body won't comply. Mm-hmm. It's actually beautifully freeing to have somebody say, I don't really know how your body's going to respond. But I, I do know that there is a life available to you beyond this, right? So for me, that is ultimately where I've landed is just being exhausted by the experience of not having a life beyond counting and measuring and waiting for the magic to happen, right? Uh, I can say that this shift in understanding myself has given me a life that's so much bigger than the life that I had for 37 years, basically, you know? And I, when people do talk to me about this part about their relationship with food because they'll ask me too like well what what does it mean i mean my body is bigger i think that's important for me to say and own that my body is bigger than it was four years ago um 
which if you would have told me four years ago that that's what was going to happen, I probably wouldn't have gone on this journey. I am actually profoundly grateful I didn't know because now here in this body, what I've gained beyond the weight, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give back in a second. I wouldn't give it back in a second. Right. But I wouldn't, I didn't know that until I'd tried it. It's the, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. And so you're really speaking to mental energy that Mm -hmm. you have for life instead of food rules and restriction and changing your body. And I think so many people will say that of how their body changed or didn't change through intuitive eating and say, I'm okay with this now because this process has allowed me to honor the skin that I'm in and respect my body, care for myself. And it doesn't mean the, you know, kind of sometimes feels fake to people, body positivity, like in the toxic positivity way of like, you'll love yourself. Well, some days it's going to be hard, Mm -hmm. but you know that you can take care of yourself and that your body's your partner. Yep. People ask me that a lot too. They'll say, well, am I, when will I get to the place that I love myself every day? And anyone who's married or partnered, I don't wake up and feel over an overwhelming sentiment of love for my wife every day. Mm-hmm. I get up and I choose an act, an action that's loving. I choose to love in an action way. And that for me is how, like, I, I, I don't wake up every day and, like, praise this body in the mirror. But I do find myself throughout the day with a deep sense of gratitude for the function of my body mm-hmm. all, day, all day long. And it is pretty wild to discover that I actually can be trusted. Over time, I'm learning, and it's only been four years, which in you know, comparison to the years of dieting is really not that long, um, that I can trust myself with food. I mean, there are so many foods that I have in my pantry that I would have told you I cannot have in my pantry. I forget that they're there now, yeah. which is enormous freedom for me. I mean, I walked around constantly afraid of anything that was outside of the parameters of whatever diet I was on. And none of that scares me anymore. Um, So a couple of particular sort of like diet myths or things that I want you to just talk about um, through lens of intuitive eating. And then I want you to talk a little bit too next about what is it what does an intuitive eating journey sort of look like Mm -hmm. high level. But um, the first one that I want you to respond to from a from an intuitive eating lens is, uh, are we addicted to sugar? Is sugar, do we have sugar addicts running around? Oh God, what a great question. Thanks so much. (laughs) I mean, I already know the answer, but. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. no, no. And when we hear things about sugar lights up the same place in the the brain as cocaine, so do hugs, so does music, so do other pleasurable things. This is a pleasure center. Mm -hmm. Does not mean we're addicted to it. And when we think of any, any source of carbohydrate, what it breaks down to in the body is sugar. So your quinoa or whatever carbohydrate that feels safe for you know most wellness culture these days, it's all breaking down into sugar too. And that is what fuels our bodies and our brains. And it's the most efficient and preferred source of fuel for the body. We can't be addicted to something that's necessary for life. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we can't feel addicted to it. There's so many people who feel out of control and feel addicted to sugar. And that is a very real feeling, but we really want to break it down of why do you feel that way? 
it's more based on the restriction. It's based on the rules of you can't have sugar, you should minimize sugar, you've got to cut sugar out. And the more that we try to do that, if that's what our bi body biologically wants to run on, we're going to crave it. Mm -hmm. We're going to want that. It's, it's pleasurable to eat. And that's one of the joys of eating is we can enjoy food. And sugar starts to break down right on our tongues. It's very pleasing to consume. Mm -hmm. And we deserve to have that experience. But diet culture wants us to think it's addictive, think it's toxic, all these awful things. And it, it really disrupts our relationship with it. How are we supposed to learn to eat it in a relaxed and enjoyable manner if we're told that it's addictive and it's going to kill us and it's poison? Yep. That sugar in particular for me has been a journey of observation because what I've discovered over time is that when I am plugged into the cues, the actual feedback my body's giving me, I don't want a lot of sugar at a time. It doesn't actually feel good in my body. But that I did not know that for decades. Yeah. Because anytime I would give myself permission again, it, it it's that it's the restrict binge connection. It's over and over and over and over. And it breaks my heart the number of women that particularly women, because I always talk to women. I'm sure men have the same experience. But the number of women I talk to who are like, no, no, you just don't know me and this food. And I'm like, mm, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the feeling is real. Yeah. But the feeling is, is related back to the absence of permission right. to enjoy what you're eating, mm -hmm. which actually leads me to my second question. Through a lens of intuitive eating, um, what do you think about people who label themselves in a derogatory way as emotional eaters? We are born to eat in accordance with our emotions and food is soothing right from the very first day of life and emotional eating is not inherently bad. Mm -hmm. I taught a class on intuitive eating several years ago and out of curiosity just googled emotional eating and everything that came up was how to stop emotional eating, why it's bad for you, all of these tips and tricks and emotional eating is normal. And if we're told that it's abnormal and we're wrong for doing it, we feel wrong for being human. We can't actually experience normal eating if we think that emotional eating is a separate thing. So food is not just fuel. Food is connection. Food is memories. Food is so much more. And I, when I think about emotional eating, one of the biggest um, examples that I give is with biscuits and gravy in my family. Mm. My great-grandmother made them. My mother made them with us growing up. My sister and I make them, and my mom make them with my niece nowadays. And it is something that we connect over. It is something that has fond memories. And when I was in college, I would make biscuits and gravy just to kind of feel close to family. Yep. And that's not pathological. We're not wrong for seeking connection in that way. Mm -hmm. There can be times when emotional eating can be destructive and we want people to feel better about that. And so there are ways that we can heal, but it doesn't mean that all emotional eating is a bad thing. That's awesome. Thank you. And you actually already answered the third one I was going to ask, which was, is food just fuel? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> but, but why is it not? Like there's a biological, I mean, it is the, it this idea that it's nothing but energy, that it doesn't impact us um, on like a biopsychosocial 
level is just untrue. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. It's a, it's not true. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're all holding ourselves accountable, so many of us are holding ourselves accountable um, to shifting our lens on food so that it's just this reductive way of seeing it. Mm-hmm. And then feeling like we fail when we can't quite get there because that is not the way our bodies are made, nor is it the way food is made. And the interaction between the two has to do with energy, yes, but not just energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's really, it's, I say it all the time, but it's really nice to have like a professional person say <laughs> to say the research shows us this, right. you know, yes, that, that this is, I think one of the, the key things that is coming up a lot is in dietetics, a lot of, or, you know, the world of dietitian mm-hmm. training is that we're taught things in a very like Eurocentric way. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of cultural competency in terms of the foods that dietitians recommend to individuals, say if they have a heart attack, are we really saying how to include the foods of people's cultures? And if we're not including that, then they feel that that's a bad thing, but it's not just fuel to them. It's a connection to their culture and their heritage. And even if, if we don't have a strong connection in that way, we still have foods that are very meaningful to us Mm -hmm. that remind us of loved ones and celebrations and our own traditions. And that's really important. You know, every key social event typically includes food. Yeah. Um, And then if we think about folks who can't partake in that, say they have serious food allergies and they can't partake in that, those individuals suffer greatly socially unless they're given a lot of support. Right. And the number of people that in my life I've heard say, um, well, you know, we make everything about food in this culture. And I'm like, that's not just this culture. Like, study anthropology. Right. I mean, this is not new. Mm -hmm. It's new in in our current expression. I mean, but that's always true. Mm -hmm. We didn't just in the 21st century come up with like, we center food. I mean, cultures center food because it's how we stay alive. Mm-hmm. Kind of important. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, with the time we have left, I want us to talk a little bit of like a high level, like what does an intuitive eating journey look like? I can speak a little bit to my own. Like I said, I spent most of my time since 2018 just not dieting. And I was like that. So now I'm eating intuitively. <laughs> this was like I had two options, yeah. dieting or eating intuitively. And then... Um, I got stuck in a place, particularly around, it was of course around me being hyper analytical about my hunger and fullness cue, particularly my fullness cues. And which is how I got to you because I was like, I go to lunch with somebody and I eat half of the entree and then I get the rest of it to go and I'm not hungry anymore and I eat the rest in the car and I want to know what that is about. Like, I don't want to do that. And I don't, unraveling that for me, it was an enormous source of shame. Um, And I don't remember exactly what you shared with me in those first couple of sessions, but I know that it was pretty quick for me to go, maybe I'm just still hungry at lunch. Yeah. (laughs) Like, maybe I wasn't quite done when it was half. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Mm -hmm. And, like, once I started to go, I don't have to eat the second half in the car, Mm -hmm. um, it was amazing to just discover, like, that I probably wanted a little bit more than half, but not quite the whole thing. And it didn't really matter. Like just taking some pressure off of that experience was kind of where I got s- started truly. Yeah. And I still, when you and I work together, you know this, um, basically at, 
I talk a ton. And then at the end, you say like three things that I'm like, oh, God, that's brilliant. <laughs> and then I work on those on that thing for like three or four months. Right. Uh -huh. So the most recent experience was uh, I was talking about um, feeling like by the time I got to dinner at night. So one of the things that we identified probably about a year ago, because I, then I was talking about nighttime eating, which I think is a common thing for people as well um and how i felt like i could honor hunger and fullness throughout the day but i really struggled at night when i was full to stop uh and i think some of that is related to the fact that nighttime was when i was starving for so long and so i think there is a pattern for my body now to know that she has permission to be fed and there's still definitely some of that famine fear in her for sure but then this last time we were talking and I was like, it's like, it's like the two bites on my wife's plate, right? That I take these two bites and, and I want to stop doing that because I'm not hungry anymore. And you were basically like, yeah, but your, your body can figure out what to do with a couple of bites of food. And I, my mind was like blown because it's, again, it's that, it is the neural pathways formed in diet culture that every bite matters. It's the make or break bite. This is the thing that could set me off into some binge for months. This is, this is my way of proving my worth. Like it's every, there's so much pressure on every bite. It was mind boggling to me that I could probably just give myself permission to take those two bites. They don't make me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's for me, the measure now of like, that's not where I want to go, you know, being uncomfortable in my body. But um, so my point is, for me, this this thing has not been linear. It's not been like, there's principle one, and I, in a yeah. linear way, make my way through them all. It's been like an evolution for me, kind of like layers of an onion or a spiral, something that is a little bit more circular in nature. And I also often think I've got it figured out, and then I mm, email you three months later, and I'm like, by the way... <laughs> I don't know a damn thing, so <laughs> we're going to need to talk. So that's a little bit kind of of the journey for me. Do you want to, can you talk about what it's like in general? Yeah, yeah. And I would say two words that I love people to keep in mind throughout the process are curiosity mm -hmm. and compassion, mm -hmm. because there can oftentimes be a lot of urgency to get it figured out mm -hmm. um, and a lot of self-judgment when things don't, quote, go right, yeah. um, which is really just the experience of, getting to know your body and figuring it out. Yeah. And so I think there's a profound confusion for most people when they're starting out. And intuitive eating doesn't necessarily encourage a lot of structure as you get started, but I do think that that's helpful for a lot of people to have some sort of structure to their eating in their day of, you know, three meals, one to three snacks, some kind of fueling themselves on a rhythm so mm -hmm. that their body gets used to being nourished regularly mm -hmm. and start to integrate these 10 principles. They don't have to be done in order. Um, principle one is pretty essential to be able to lean in to the sure. rest of them. But oftentimes when I'm working with folks and maybe they're going through one of the intuitive eating books or workbooks, we jump around to whatever chapter is most you know, important to where they're at. Mm -hmm. So there there takes a lot of, um, they call it hyper-consciousness in the book, where you're thinking a lot about your eating. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of focus on 
you know, what do you want? What's going to sound good? When are you hungry? When are you full? Really trying to get reacquainted with that. And that takes up a lot of mental energy. The difference between that and being um, obsessed with it is that you're not worried about it. This hyper-consciousness is a a lot of curiosity. It's not judgment or worry. Mm. It's just an internal questioning. Mm. What what does my body feel like? What sounds good to me? We may go through, you know, using our senses. Is there a certain texture that appeals to me or a temperature or um, a a heaviness to a food? You know, do I feel like a a hearty grilled cheese sandwich or do I want something um, light like popcorn for a snack or something? And so... It really takes a lot of connection to examining our senses and our body cues, and it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And I think that mistakes are inevitable. And I don't even know if I want to call them mistakes, but just it's just trial and error throughout the process. Even somebody who's done intuitive eating for decades will still make mistakes with eating and realize, oh my gosh, I'm so full. I didn't realize mm-hmm. I was going to feel this uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's not wrong. Just because we try to tune into hunger and fullness, we're doing that for the most part. We have permission to eat emotionally. We have permission to overeat. We have permission to eat on the run. There's no rules around what you're supposed to do, what's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And so we try to tune into the body as much as possible. And sometimes it is a good idea to take some time for mindful meals or to reduce distractions during eating so that you can really hear those cues better. Yeah, yeah. But it's not a rule. You can eat and watch TV, but you may want to experience some meals where you're just seated with your food and have minimal distractions, Yeah, which is really uncomfortable for a lot of people. I used to cry in the beginning of that experience. Yeah. Truly cry. Like there was, um, I wasn't, necessarily in pain there was like this um there's a lot of grief around it I actually to this day too sometimes I can have an experience with food that feels actually now the the tears often can be about like I didn't know it could be this good it's mostly that now but in the beginning those mindful meals were like I remember one time sobbing over a bowl of soup I mean legitimate sobbing because I was slow enough to experience what it's like to be like warmed from the inside and, and feel full because I had spent so much of my life not being full. Yeah. And it's such a transformative experience. And I think a lot of people will feel confused about when they're making progress in an intuitive eating journey because we're not doing the traditional diet things like weighing or measuring or checking in at week five or whatever. Yeah. We are just allowing that connection to change over time. What does progress look like, actually? That's a really good point. When someone feels more connected to their body, yep. when they have less of those stressful experiences with food, whether that's, you know, they go long periods of time without eating and, and get headaches and feel ravenous and don't have food available at home or the person who feels like they're constantly eating and then they find that they can have space between and that it, it feels better to have Um, a little bit of time to figure out what they want to eat and what's satisfying. But it it is a really good question because it's not a, it's not a defined term. It's really a a very individual um, subjective process of, of when does someone feel better? Mm -hmm. When does it feel more relaxed for them as they're eating and as they're thinking about food? So while you can't, the the last question I have for you um, is, 
about what people can expect. So while I know that you can't um, tell them what's going to happen with their bodies, what have you seen in your years of practice? What is available to people should they want to consider maybe understanding this a little bit differently? Do you mean in the sense of what can they get in their life through yeah. the yeah. process? Yeah, like what's the benefit? Because mm-hmm. people are, you know, cost benefit. Yes, yes. It's I, capitalism. <laughs> I, we're still in that. Yes. So, <laughs> I would say the the mental freedom yeah. is one of the biggest pieces. Um, if the folks who are listening could reflect on how much time they spend thinking about food, planning the next meal. Um, what's right or wrong with food, researching recipes, diets, and mm-hmm. you know how much mental energy do we spend on trying to fix our eating or our bodies? Yep. And what would we like to do with that time mm-hmm. if we really didn't have to be hustling for that, but that if we could find that reconnection and know and trust that our body can guide us to that day in and day out, yep. what are we going to do with that mental energy? And I think that that translates for a lot of people into other areas of life where people will say this intuitive eating is now intuitive living Yep. and they're connected to life and they're doing healing work more than just with their relationship with food. Mm-hmm. I love that intuitive living you said. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Because as I will talk more about in this season, for me, it. In the beginning, I wanted to reduce it all to my relationship with food, but man, that has been a, it's just a touchstone for almost everything else. I mean, it has been like pulling a thread, you know, and, and the unraveling in a good way, unraveling of things that I've held so tightly for so long, so much fatigue around how tightly I held on. Um, I can say definitively that it has that the experience of of giving myself permission to incorporate some of these principles into the way I understand my relationship with food has absolutely changed things in my life that you would have never even connected food to. Or I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't think they were at all connected. But the way that I love is different because um, I am not so tight, you know, about everything. Uh, so where can people find you? Tell people how to get to you. Yeah. So my website is just my name, michellerussellrd.com. Okay. Um, that has, you know, my email, my social media is on there. I'm not as active as I used to be. Um, but I do have Facebook and Instagram where I post some, some things once in a while. Mm-hmm. My website's probably the best place to find me and what I have to offer. Great. And you offer services virtually, so people yes. don't have to be near you. Right. Right. Great. Um, is there anything else we forgot? Anything that's burning in your mind that you're like, oh, God, I really think people need to know about this? I would just say that wherever someone is at when they're hearing this, that a lot of us who have heard about intuitive eating, we didn't jump on it the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if people need to go through another diet or several more diets and they come back to this, that's okay. Because I think sometimes people are not in the place where it's safe for them to reconnect with their bodies. Mm -hmm. And we want to let each person come to that in their own time. Mm -hmm. And they're the only one who can answer that. That's perfect. Well, thank you for your time today and for your expertise and for um, 
and just for being willing to do this work in the world the way that you do. You've been a very safe place for me, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for being willing to be a witness to these women and to their stories. If you loved today's episode, be sure to subscribe and write a review. And most importantly, invite the women you know to join this chorus of courage and help us make a world where everybody belongs. I'll see you all soon.